Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Six family members set off on a two-week-long camping trip in one of the largest recreational parks in British Columbia, but they never returned home. A large-scale search party found no sign of the missing family. It was as if six people, their camper, and their 10-foot boat had simply vanished into thin air. This is Monsters. Bob Johnson had been excited about his vacation for months. He'd taken a rare two weeks of time off from work, which he planned to spend camping with his two daughters, his wife Jackie and her parents. On August 2, 1982, Bob and Jackie packed up their car with 13-year-old Janet and 11-year-old Karen strapped into the back seat and set out towards their destination. The camping trip was taking place in Wells Gray Park, one of the largest recreational areas that British Columbia had to offer, full of opportunities for fishing, hiking, and sightseeing. On their drive, Bob and Jackie had arranged to meet up with Jackie's parents, Edith and George Bentley. Edith and George had recently retired, and they were lifelong campers who jumped at any opportunity to spend time outdoors. The Bentleys were going to bring their most cherished recent purchase along, a 1981 Ford Camper Special, complete with a small aluminum boat mounted on top. The day that Bob was supposed to return to work came around, but there was no sign of him. His boss was immediately worried that something had gone wrong on the camping trip because Bob had worked at the same company for more than two decades, and he was known as a reliable, loyal employee. Certainly not the type of guy who would fail to show up for work without calling in first. That day, Bob Johnson was reported missing. Police quickly discovered that Bob wasn't the only member of the family who had failed to come home from the camping trip. His two daughters, his wife, and her parents were also unaccounted for, and so were the two vehicles they'd been driving. The search focused on Wells Gray Park, where Bob and his family had been planning on camping out during those two weeks, but authorities found no clues. Almost exactly a month after the campers had failed to return from their holiday, local police got a visit from a concerned mushroom picker who had found something suspicious in Wells Gray Park. Police visited the location that the mushroom picker had shared with them and found a burnt-out car that had been dumped deep in the forest. The car was the same make as the vehicle that Bob drove, and it had been burnt so severely that the metal and glass had melted. 
Sitting there in the remains of the vehicle were four sets of incinerated human remains. It was clear that whoever had started the fire had used some sort of chemical accelerant to destroy as much of the remains as possible. The four bodies in the car were later identified as Bob, his wife Jackie, and Jackie's parents, Edith and Bob Bentley, but two missing people were still unaccounted for, 11-year-old Karen and 13-year-old Janet. Sergeant Michael Easton was leading the team of responding officers, and he was the one to pop the car's trunk. As it opened, he saw more human remains that had been burnt down to skull fragments and chips of bone. The remains in the trunk belonged to Karen and Janet. It was determined that they had all been shot with a 22 caliber rifle. All of the missing campers had been killed, placed in Bob's own car, and then lit on fire. Family members of the Johnsons and Bentleys had been holding out hope that their loved ones would be found okay. When they got the news that the car had been discovered and contained several sets of human remains, that hope was extinguished. Karen and Janet's cousin, Kelly Nielsen, still remembers the moment her mother called her to let her know, repeating the same sentence, quote, They're all dead. All six of them. The day before Kelly celebrated her 18th birthday, her family decided to hold a small service in memory of the Johnsons and Bentleys. One horrifying detail in particular stuck with Kelly for the rest of her life. The remains of the six victims had been burnt so much that they all fit inside a tiny casket meant for the body of an infant. Kelly said, quote, If I focused on it too long, I would scream until my vocal cords would no longer allow it. Now that foul play was confirmed in the deaths, the search for evidence in Wells Gray Park intensified. In particular, the authorities needed to find the other missing vehicle, the camper driven by Edith and George. It was a resource-heavy search, using specialized scent-tracking dogs, on-foot search parties, and helicopters scanning the forests from above for any sign of the camper. Despite such a thorough search effort, the camper was not found. However, investigators found something else, the site where they believed the murders had taken place. They had known that the family weren't murdered in the vehicle, there were no shell casings found in or around the car, and it was unlikely that the killer had managed to restrain four adults in a vehicle while shooting them one by one. After combing the forest, several shell casings from a 22 caliber rifle were found on the ground about 12 miles or 20 kilometers away from Bob's car, alongside other evidence that somebody had recently camped in the area. Several bottles of Bob's favorite beer were found left in a stream, as if someone had put them there to keep them cool, but never returned to drink them. There were also two whittled sticks that were sharp on one end. It seemed that they had been used for roasting marshmallows over a campfire. Although investigators had no way of knowing this at the time, the search for the Bentley's camper wasn't failing because the vehicle was severely burnt or well hidden. It had failed because somebody had taken the vehicle from the scene of the crime to dispose of it instead of leaving it close to the car. One report came in from a witness who had seen two Frenchmen driving a similar camper towards Quebec, but it eventually turned out to be a false lead. But at that stage in the investigation, authorities began to seriously consider that the camper hadn't been left anywhere near Wells Gray Park. Desperate for more witnesses to come forward, Canadian police created an identical replica of the Bentley's camper, including the 10-foot boat attached to the top of the vehicle, which they then drove across the country. 
They hoped that the sight of the camper might jog the memories of people who had seen the actual camper, but despite more than a thousand individuals seeing the replica, no key witnesses came forward. However, the press conference held during the camper's journey across the country did help to keep the general public aware of the murders, increasing the chances that eventually a helpful tip would come in. More than a year after the murders, two on-duty forest rangers saw a seemingly abandoned camper on a remote side road, only 18 miles or 30 kilometers away from the site where Bob's car had been dumped. Despite being burnt, he was quickly identified as the camper belonging to the Bentleys. Up until that point, investigators had considered that the murderer could have been another camper in Wells Gray Park, or a transient individual who had carried out a crime of opportunity. Now, they were certain that the killer was local. The side road was a perfect place to leave a vehicle undiscovered for months or even years, and nobody but a local to the area would be aware of its existence. In the 14 months that had passed since the Johnsons and Bentleys were killed, investigators had been combing through an estimated 13,000 tips. Most of them were vague, coming from locals who wanted to help however they could. However, several of the tips stood out to investigators, because they all provided information about the same person, a local man by the name of David William Shearing. One of the callers even told police that David had approached him recently, asking for advice about fixing a bullet hole that had been left in the door of his truck. In a complete coincidence, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police had actually interviewed David in the early days of the investigation. His family's farmhouse was located only a mile or about one and a half kilometers away from the scene of the crime. During the interview, officers noticed that a 22 caliber rifle was hanging on the wall. What they didn't know was that, if they'd taken the gun into forensics, they would have found that it matched the shell casings found at the scene of the crime. But at that time in the investigation, there was no reason to believe he was a suspect. Now, with multiple tips naming him, that had changed. David Shearing had lived in east-central British Columbia his whole life. What's more, the caller claimed that David had in-depth knowledge of Wells Gray Park and its surrounding roads. Now that investigators strongly believed that they were looking for a local, it seemed possible that David could be a suspect. He was the black sheep of his family. Despite a father who worked as a prison guard and a brother who was a sheriff, David had frequently found himself on the wrong side of the law. He had a criminal record after his involvement in a fatal hit-and-run the previous year, as well as a string of arrests for possession of narcotics, driving under the influence and assault. He was due for a court appearance in the city of Kamloops that same week after being recently caught stealing. The RCMP set out to locate David and quickly found him in Tumblr Ridge, a municipality just north of Kamloops. Investigators were aware that, despite David fitting their suspect profile perfectly, they had very little concrete evidence to prove that he was connected to the crime. They took a risk, deciding to take David into custody, hoping that he would reveal incriminating information during questioning so that he could be officially tied to the killings. Initially, they told David that he was being arrested on suspicion of being involved in a hit-and-run. It wasn't far from the truth because David actually had been involved in a hit-and-run incident, and he was quick to confess that to investigators. It was only after they received that first confession that detectives revealed the real reason they'd placed David under arrest, the six murders that had taken place more than a year prior. 
Despite his extensive criminal record and spending half of his adult life in and out of police custody in local courtrooms, David couldn't handle the pressure of the interrogation. While he was being questioned by Sergeant Eastham, the same sergeant who had found the six bodies at the very start of the investigation, David made the mistake of admitting that he knew where the killings had occurred, even though the specific location of the murders had not been revealed to the public. Sergeant Eastham latched onto that mistake, and David began to unravel. At first, he only told Sergeant Eastham that he had been in Grayswell Park at the same time as the murdered family. Then he admitted to stalking the unaware family as they settled into their campsite. Finally, Sergeant Eastham got what he needed, a murder confession. David walked him through the sequence of events that had taken place, telling him that he had murdered the four adults first, quickly shooting them all with his 22 caliber rifle. After the adults were dead, he felt less rushed to kill the girls. He didn't reveal what he did to the girls after their parents were dead, only telling the sergeant that both Karen and Janet had been shot inside of one of the family's tents. With all of the victims now dead, David had dragged each of the bodies to Bob's car, placing the adults in the seats and shutting Karen and Janet's bodies in the trunk. The car wasn't burned on the same day as the murders. Feeling confident that the bodies wouldn't be quickly discovered, David had gone home to rest. The following morning, he drove back to the campsite, getting into the driver's seat of Bob's car alongside the four dead passengers. He drove the car to the site where it was later discovered, doused it in more than five gallons of gasoline, and set it on fire. His reason for burning the car so thoroughly was to dispose of evidence, though at the time, David didn't admit to the type of evidence he was trying to conceal. Once again, David took a break from the crime scene. Several days passed before he decided to return and take care of the Bentley's camper. He'd initially wanted to re-register the vehicle under his own name and use it for himself, but he quickly figured out that was too risky. Instead, he parked the camper down a rarely used side road and set it on fire as well. Before he left the camper, he combed through it, searching for anything of value that he wanted to keep. This part of his story was verified after investigators searched the ranch where David's parents lived, uncovering several items that belonged to the Bentleys. David's family were shocked by the news that he'd been arrested for murder. His mother, Rose, said, quote, I hope it's a bad mistake or a bad dream. He's always been such a good boy. He's always worked hard and he's always saw that I had everything. Sergeant Eastham decided to drive David to the three sites he had described, the campsite and the places where the two vehicles had been dumped. Obediently, David reenacted everything he could remember doing, as well as handing over the murder weapon willingly. His story remained exactly the same as during his interrogation. It appeared that he was telling the truth, at least about the parts he was willing to disclose. David had told the sergeant that he refused to reveal some details about the killings before his sentencing. Sergeant Eastham had become more and more bothered by not knowing the whole story. For the past two years, this case had become the sergeant's life. He was skeptical of David's claims that his motive for the killings had simply been having total possession of his victims, especially because David admitted to having killed the adults first, leaving the girls alive for an undetermined period of time. Although David had looted some of the family's possessions, Sergeant Eastham also didn't believe that robbery was the motive. He had suspicions that David had killed the victims for much more sinister reasons. He could only hope that David would keep his word and reveal the truth after he received his sentence. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On April 16, 1984, David pled guilty to all six counts of murder. The following day, he received his sentence, six concurrent life sentences, one for each of the murders plus 25 years before he would be eligible for parole. In an effort to uncover the truth, Sergeant Easton visited David in his holding cell, telling him that he would be the one responsible for writing his parole report, the document which would dictate his parole conditions for the length of his prison sentence. He told him, quote, You know why I'm here, David. I think you sexually abused those girls before you killed them. You told me some time ago that you would consider telling me the rest of the story after you were sentenced. Well, I'm here to collect, David, and I'm not taking no for an answer. David began to talk. He'd avoided revealing these details before his sentence because he knew that he might receive a harsher sentence, and he also knew that if other prisoners found out what he had done, he would spend his jail sentence living in fear of being attacked or killed. Word by word, Sergeant Eastham discovered part of what really happened on the night of the murders. More details of the story only surfaced years later, when David received sex offender treatment in prison. The first part of David's new story contained the same actions David had described in the first police interview. He'd seen the campers from a distance and killed the adults by shooting them first, while they were sitting around the campfire. However, he'd lied about his motive. Yeah, no shit. It hadn't been the desire to kill six people, or the uncontrollable urge to have complete possession of his victims. The reason he'd approached the family had been the sight of their two young daughters. He was particularly taken by the taller, blonde sister, 13-year-old Janet. He knew that he wouldn't have access to Janet while her family was still alive, so he decided to kill them, describing the first murders as, quote, a means to an end because the four adults were in the way of what he wanted at the time. It had been late at night and Karen and Janet were already sleeping in their tent, with no idea that their parents and grandparents had just been shot dead. David unzipped the tent and spoke to the girls, telling them that their parents had gone to find help after seeing a dangerous gang of bikers near their campsite. He told the girls to remain in the tent, which they did. David loaded the four bodies into Bob's car and used a blanket to conceal them from view. Then he returned to Karen and Janet's tent. This time, he climbed inside with them. Despite making the decision to keep both girls alive, Janet was the target of his sexual assaults. Karen was simply allowed to live because an 11-year-old girl posed no threat to David. David explained, quote, It was just Janet as far as what I was thinking. Karen just happened to be there. But both Janet and Karen were terrified by the stranger inside their tent, and when David hit Janet, she burst into tears. Seeing her distress took him out of his own sadistic fantasy, and he wasn't able to continue with his violent assault. He said, quote, At that point, I lost the excitement that I had felt. I wasn't able to continue any further in the sadistic part of it. David hadn't killed the girls shortly after their parents. In fact, he hadn't even killed them on the same day. Although this detail had been concealed by the thorough burning of their remains, 
Karen and Janet had remained alive for almost an entire week. There was no reason for him to rush into killing them. He knew that it was likely that nobody even knew the family was missing. And with the four adults out of the way, he felt able to take his time in repeatedly assaulting and terrorizing Janet. The real reason why David had taken several days to dispose of the vehicles was that he was keeping both girls as prisoners, transporting them first to his ranch and then to a cabin on the Clearwater River, and then finally back to the ranch. At the cabin on the river, Karen and Janet had come so close to freedom. A group of prisoners were having a supervised fishing trip in the area, and their guard had come to knock on David's door to let him know. David told Karen and Janet to stand behind the door out of the guard's line of sight. Although the girls weren't spotted, this close call made David nervous, and he knew that their time in captivity had come to an end. He bundled them into the car and took them back to his ranch. When they arrived, he ordered the girls to come into the woods with him, one at a time. Once they were out of sight, he told them that he wanted to urinate and asked them to turn and face the other way. It was only with their backs to him that he was able to make himself aim his rifle and shoot them in the back of the head. He transported their bodies back to Bob's car and lit the whole thing on fire, concealing the different times of death as well as he could. It was a horrific story, and despite spending so long searching for the truth, Sergeant Easton wished it was a lie. Fortunately, the story provided him with a witness that he could use to verify David's version of events. The prison guard who had supposedly been supervising a fishing trip on the Clearwater River, who confirmed that he had knocked on the door of David Shearing's cabin. The story was true. Karen and Janet had lived for more than a week being sexually abused and held as prisoners by David. Investigators worked to locate the fishing cabin where the girls had been held captive. There were two sets of initial carvings into the cabin walls, side by side. They belonged to David Shearing and his victim, Janet Johnson. There were no initials belonging to Karen. She had truly just been a bystander to the torture and assault of her older sister. Despite being hated by both the wider community of British Columbia and many of his fellow inmates, David was able to begin a romantic relationship with a woman named Heather while he was in prison. Despite not knowing David before his incarceration, Heather believed that David's time behind bars had truly changed him, saying, quote, I have seen so much change in this man since we met. I know the man's heart is in the right place, and I'm just here to back him up. She had so much faith in David that she agreed to marry him, despite knowing that he would not be eligible for parole for more than a decade. Marrying David wasn't easy for Heather. News got around that her husband was a man who had murdered an entire family and a child sexual predator, resulting in her being fired from her job. She protested the decision in court, claiming that firing her because she was married was a violation of her human rights. One of the judges assigned to the case believed differently, saying that Heather hadn't been fired because she was married, she'd been fired because of who she had decided to marry. Heather might have unwavering faith that David was a good man, but the rest of Canada didn't feel the same way. Unlike Heather, Sergeant Eastham didn't believe that David had had a change of heart in prison. In fact, he believed that David was enjoying the power and notoriety of being a convicted murderer of six people. He said, quote, David has never shown one indication of remorse. He's one of the big guys in the big house because he's a murderer and he's having a good time there. David Shearing's crimes were the defining point of Sergeant Eastman's career. 
It was the one case that stuck with him more than anything else ever had. For a long time, many of the details that Sergeant Easton had learned about David Shearing's crimes remained a secret. It was something that he had to live with every day, and the knowledge that David might one day be released from prison weighed heavily on his mind. He later said, quote, I was in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for 35 years, and for 35 years I had to keep my mouth shut. Three years after retiring from the RCMP, Sergeant Eastman published a book about the case titled The Seventh Shadow. The blurb reads, quote, Including crime scene photos, original journal entries, and interrogation notes, The Seventh Shadow captures the immediacy and sustained aggression of a massive and difficult murder investigation. Sergeant Eastham wanted to reveal some of the inadequacies of Canada's justice system, but he also wanted to make sure that the victims and the horrific nature of David's crimes were never forgotten by the public. The rest of the world might have forgotten about the murders, but the lifelong residents of Clearwater, and especially those who knew the victims, never forgot. During his imprisonment, David sent a letter to an old childhood friend of his asking if people in Clearwater still hated him. The friend never replied, but despite four decades now having passed since the murders, the answer is still yes. As the day that David would become eligible for parole approached, a petition to prevent his release was signed by almost 10,000 locals. Bob Johnson's brother, Art, commented on the petition. He said, quote, I just hope the petition makes a difference. What David Shearing did was so terrible. What in the world was wrong with the man? And what he did to those girls, that's the part that tears you apart. It was September of 2008 when David Shearing was finally eligible for parole. Two dozen relatives of David's victims appeared in front of the parole board to deliver their impact statements. The younger relatives, who had only been children at the time of the killings, described how their childhoods had been impacted. Their parents had been paranoid, wanting to protect their children from meeting the same fate. They'd grown up living in fear of strangers, unable to hang out with friends or play without parental supervision. One cousin, Michelle Botello, addressed David directly, telling him, quote, you have ruined my life. She spoke about how she'd grown up unable to mourn her cousins because her father refused to keep photos of them in the house. Even years later, he was overcome by emotions when he looked at pictures of Karen or Janet. She said, quote, I will never know the man my father was before his heart was ripped out of his chest. While the statements were read, David had his back to the gallery. Despite not looking at the relatives of his victims, he seemed to have an emotional response to their words and began to cry. At the time of the murders, he'd been 24 years old. Now he'd spent almost his entire adult life behind bars. At the hearing, David spoke publicly about his deviant sexual fantasies, which had begun when he was a teenager. He believed that the fantasies had started because of the anger he felt at not being able to fit in with the other kids, telling the parole board that his violent fantasies had been so intense that they'd been all he could think about, causing him to spend his life running on autopilot. He told the board, quote, I thought it was normal for a man to think that way. With his statement coming to a close, David was asked if there was anything else he would like to say to the board or the victims. He unfolded a piece of paper and began to read, quote, My crime was an enormous, brutal, and inexcusable tragedy, resulting in tremendous loss to the community that I can never make up for. It makes me hate to be in my own skin. The parole board were shocked at his words. It was the first time he'd publicly apologized for his crimes in more than two decades. 
Relatives of the Johnsons and Bentleys, however, weren't moved by the apology. Michelle Botello said, quote, It was like looking at the devil. He's a waste of a body. Another cousin, Shelley Bowden, told reporters, quote, Don't listen to anything he says. He has no remorse. Despite his apology, the Parole Board of Canada ruled that David wasn't ready for release, as he hadn't successfully completed sex offender treatment and was still reportedly experiencing violent sexual fantasies. While denying David eligibility for parole, the board told him, quote, There are overwhelming negative aspects in your case. The gravity and severity of your offending, it's of the utmost level. It was very violent and it devastated so many people. When we look at your assessed risk, together with your diagnosis of sexual sadism, which largely remains unchanged, the most appropriate place for you to make gains is in the safety and security of the institution. Four years later, David applied for parole again, and he was denied a second time. He decided to adopt his mother's maiden name, becoming David Enos, and in 2014, David Enos applied for parole, then decided to withdraw his application himself before the hearing took place. David's most recent appeal was in 2021. A Change.org petition opposing his release collected more than 100,000 signatures and was presented to the Canadian Parole Board. The petition's creator, Tammy Arishenkoff, was a childhood friend of Janet's. Tammy believed that David was still a hazard to society and that releasing him from prison would put others at risk. She said, quote, Six people died because he wanted them dead. He is still the same sick, brutal, callous, remorseless monster that he was in 1982. He showed no mercy for my friend. Once again, David attended a parole hearing and, for the third time, it was rejected. As of 2023, David William Shearing, now known as David Enos, is still behind bars, and the people affected by his crimes are determined to keep it that way. He may have changed his name, but he was not able to change the fact that he's a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.